ladies. Happy Sunday. Thank you yet again for your patience with these long breaks in between episodes. Uh, we are thrilled <laughs> to share that we are expecting baby number four. And with that, the last two months hiatus has been due to our family uh, floundering in first trimester survival mode. <laughs> so I actually almost skipped this document. We're looking at what was produced by the Second Lateran Council. And I almost skipped it because uh, the paragraphs which I'll be reading today, um, all to all points and purposes, simply reiterate what we have already discussed in the last two episodes. But then I thought, you know, it's critical for us to realize that the church does not speak just once on any subject which has to do with our identity as Catholics, as a people set apart for the Lord, and, and we live in a manner which is markedly set apart from the rest of the world. I'm going through the Catechism in a Year podcast, and I'm a little behind, <laughs> but when, when we see what we believe uh, laid out like that in pretty succinct terms, beautifully expressed and poetic, um, even in, in many areas, but still succinct, it can be easy to forget um, that the compilation, which we generally refer to now as the Catechism, also forgetting that we have other catechisms from the Council of Trent, etc., is a fairly recent development, and that each statement within that catechism is backed by over 2,000 years of exegesis and theological exploration and clarification. So with that said, in going through the documents of the church in chronological order, I want to note for you that the Second Council of Nicaea and the First Lateran Council reiterated those same points which we covered in the last two episodes of this readings series. But by reiterated, I mean restated in the document verbatim. So what I'm taking time to read here today from the Second Lateran Council touches on similar points, but there are new details. That's why I'm reading them. So here we go. Uh, these are paragraphs six, seven, and eight from the Second Lateran Council. Quote, we also decree that those in the orders of subdeacon and above who have taken wives or concubines are to be deprived of their position and ecclesiastical benefice. For since they ought to be in fact and in name temples of God, vessels of the Lord, and sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit, it is unbecoming that they give themselves up to marriage and impurity. Adhering to the path trod by our predecessors, the Roman pontiffs Gregory VII, Urban, and Pascal, we prescribe that nobody is to hear the masses of those whom he knows to have wives or concubines. Indeed, that the law of continence and the purity pleasing to God might be propagated among ecclesiastical persons and those in holy orders. We decree that where bishops, priests, deacons, subdeacons, canons regular, monks, and professed lay brothers have presumed to take wives and so transgress this holy precept, they are to be separated from their partners. For we do not deem there to be a marriage which, it is agreed, has been contracted against ecclesiastical law. Furthermore, when they have separated from each other, let them do a penance commensurate with such outrageous behavior. We decree that the selfsame thing is to apply also to women religious if, God forbid, they attempt to marry. 
end quote. That line, which begins paragraph seven, adhering to the path trod by our predecessors, is just so beautiful and again, critical for us to note and to meditate on. What I also want to take a moment to invite you to consider is again that truth that we need God's grace to do anything good. Every vocation requires a certain amount of grit. If religious persons who have the perfect spouse in Christ are tempted to break their vows to that most perfect spouse, then how naive would we be to suppose that one human being's call to fidelity to another equally imperfect human being would be easy? Many of you have already realized this, but some of you have yet to realize that marriage, and indeed any vocation, any vowed state of life, is not for the faint of heart. St. Paul reminds us, all of us, in that letter which he addressed to the church in Ephesus, but which is true for all of us who dare to stand on the shoulders of giants, that, quote, we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. End quote. I want to bring your attention to the use of the words principalities, powers, and spiritual hosts of wickedness. I'm going to read an excerpt uh, from an article on the angelic hierarchy according to St. Thomas Aquinas, which is found on EWTN. And of course, that article will be linked in the description of this podcast episode. Quote, Thus does St. Thomas speak of the threefold division of the angelic hierarchy into three hierarchies, each with three choirs of angels. In the highest hierarchy, that is, seraphim, cherubim, and thrones, the divine ideas take on their most universal character. Oriented immediately to God, these choirs of pure spirits understand in the broadest, most general way the knowledge committed to them by God, as the eternal word is the uncreated, undivided image of the Father, these angels possess the most simple and therefore most profound understanding of that word, in whose image all created realities were made. In the second hierarchy, that is, dominions, virtues, and powers, the divine ideas begin to be multiplied, so as to have effect in the created universe. For St. Thomas, God, the first cause, brings about his plan for creation except for those matters which require the divine power, such as creating out of nothing, through the secondary causation of the angels. Thus we can say that the divine idea of creation and its laws, which in God is one and simple in the eternal word, becomes more specific and suited to material reality as it proceeds down through the angelic hierarchy. Finally, the lowest hierarchy, that is principalities, angels, sorry, principalities, archangels, and angels, understands the knowledge communicated from the higher choirs as it relates to particular realities and serves to effect in creation the will of God, 
such as the laws of nature and the guardianship of societies and individuals. End quote. I am not at all well-versed in angelology. My surface-level understanding of Aquinas is that the fallen angels are somehow not exactly ordered because you can't have order in disorder. This sounds terrible. Um, but that the fallen angels have some sort of hierarchy similar to that of the angels, but we cannot know what that hierarchy is. I wish I could say that I had time to scout out a podcast episode from someone else on angelic hierarchies and how that translates into the demonic influences with which we, with the help of God's grace, attempt to contend, but I didn't. I guess what I'm trying to bring to your attention is that even though we have no knowledge of a demonic, the equivalent of hierarchies, and should not have any desire to know. Demons are fallen angels. That's really what I want to bring to your attention, is that they have fallen and they fell from within this hierarchy of both knowledge and influence belonging to the angels. And from that simple fact alone, we can easily derive that their influence over our society is very great indeed. Someone in my wife's circle recently commented that after listening to Father Ripperger, she sees demonic influence everywhere. And it's true. There's paranoid, there's inordinately fearful, and then there's also the wisdom of being conscious of the fact that we live in a reality, that God created us to live in this reality, which is a blend of visible and invisible creation. The invisible realities are not up there somewhere far away. Um, your soul is here <laughs> with you, communing and contending with the invisible. And with that said, it's less that the two are so distinct and more that we, most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, are currently in a state of semi-blindness. Um, Padre Pio could see his guardian angel and was shocked to learn in the course of his life that that was not the norm for most everyone else. But, you know, we will see everything on the other side of death's door. And not being able to see so much of it now is not a reason to forget that it is there. We forget to our peril. My husband is playing... Um, Tears of the Kingdom right now, and sorry, you don't have to know anything about Zelda to follow this little tangent, um, but basically the main character, Link, enters these shrines and receives blessings after completing various puzzles and challenges, and the blessing, if you will, is visible. It's this distinct spot of light that enters into his body. Um, the conferring of the blessing is visible in the game, and I think we forget end tangent. I think we forget again to our peril that God confers grace through visible and tangible realities. And our issue is that we want uh, that conference to be visible in a way that's unfamiliar in order for it to get our attention. But every sacrament has both form and and matter and our problem is not that we can't see, but that we have a blindness which corresponds with our spiritual maturity or immaturity. When we pour water, 
when we drink water, when we bathe in water, do we have a consciousness of water as the matter through which grace was conferred at our baptism? When we cook with oil, when we season our cast iron skillets with oil, when we, you know, when our massage therapist uses oil to mediate pressure, when we use essential oils to promote our health, do we have a consciousness of oil as a matter through which grace has been conferred in those moments when we have been anointed with it? At baptism, at confirmation, if you've received extreme unction prior to a major surgery, etc. The invisible and visible are inextricably intertwined and we, yes, we forget that to our peril. It's not something to scare us. It's something to become more at home with. C.S. Lewis uh, uses the German Zenzucht to refer to that sense of longing that tells us that heaven is our home. This sort of restlessness that home is not here and that St. Augustine points to when he says our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. And I think that sense of longing, one which by deliberately tuning into, will make us more at home with the reality of the visible and that which is currently invisible to us on this side of death's door being intertwined. In the third book of uh, the Anne of Green Gables series, it's the book entitled Anne of the Island, one of Anne's grade school mates, Ruby, is dying at a relatively young age of tuberculosis. And she says to Anne, I'm afraid to die. And Anne asks why. And Ruby says, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, she says she's afraid because it'll be different. She thinks that she'll be homesick in heaven. She says, it won't be what I've been used to. And then further along, she says, quote, I've fought so hard to live. And it isn't any use. I have to die and leave everything I care for. End quote. Ruby Gillis in the book, prior to her illness, is portrayed as a very worldly young woman. And the way that her passing is written here suggests that trap that we can fall into of being too at home, right where we are. I think many Catholics, and I say this from being exposed to many versions of that extreme paranoia, um, avoid avoid thinking about the invisible because the invisible to them is only a source of oppression. Meaning that unhealthy focus on demonic influence. However, the reality of demonic influence is not a reason to avoid becoming familiar and at home with the invisible reality because it is not all darkness. God is there and the angels and the saints. And I shared with you a long time ago in the first few months of this podcast that one woman asked, you know, why does everything have to be a battle? And again, because it is. <laughs> because we were born into the battle for souls. Uh, we are sent forth as God's soldiers. The war has been won for all eternity. But in the course of our earthly experience of time, 
Each of us has the battle of our entire lives to fight in order to squarely place ourselves on the side of victory, which is where God wants us to be. So I wish you all a happy Sunday. Sorry, I was rambling a bit with this one. I hope you got something out of it though. Please know that I am praying for you. I would beg for your prayers for this uh, fourth pregnancy of ours and hopefully we will see you again sooner or later with another document to discuss. God bless.